And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have received grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Then verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. God bless the reading of His Word. Oh, John 1, 1 to 18. These are some of the richest verses about the doctrine of the incarnation that you can find anywhere in all the Bible. And these are some of the most life-changing words that you could ever hear. You see, Matthew and Luke, their account, Christmas account, Matthew and Luke give us the facts about Christmas. The stable, the animals, the wise men, the shepherds, the angels, the baby in the manger. But John, there's a place for that, and we're grateful for it. But John, John chooses not to focus on that at all. You notice that about the Gospel of John? We don't get those details. He jumps right in because John's focus is somewhere else altogether. John is not focused on the facts of Christmas John is focused on the astounding implications of it all and the difference it makes in your life. And so that's what I want to do from our text today. I want to answer two questions from these 18 verses. Number one, I want to answer the question, who is Jesus? Because he answers that, but he doesn't stop there. It's not just who is Jesus and then here are some of the deepest most mysterious, worth chewing on verses about Jesus being both God and man you could find. He then goes on to make sure you don't make the mistake of saying, well, this is just some deep, doctrinal, tedious treatise about the incarnation. And it's unrelated to real life. It's certainly unrelated to my life. Oh, no, no, no. Then I want to show you from these verses why the truth of the God-man makes all the difference in real lives like yours. Tomorrow, this week. Number one, let's answer that first question. Who is Jesus? Well, the first thing that John confronts us with right out of the box, verse one, is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Look at it in, in one one. 
in the beginning was the word. And it's like he gives you a little bit and says, oh, but there's more. Oh, but there's more. In the beginning, in the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. And the word was with God, but he's not done. And the word, say it. And the word was God. You see, unlike the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims and so many other people today that still have a place for and believe in an historical Jesus Christ that actually lived and they still teach some things about him. The Bible, unlike anyone else, teaches that Jesus is God. That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses in their Bible, they've added the the definite article in front of that, a God. He was a God because they say he was created. Oh, no, no, no. Unlike Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims. So put a stop to the nonsense of our world that keeps saying there's no difference. There's no difference. We all believe in a God and we all sort of have a Jesus sometimes somewhere. Jesus is God. If he's not All of humanity is still without hope. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's not just a good man, and he's certainly not another created being like everything else in this world that's created. That's why John says in verses 2 to 3 that he was in the beginning before there was anything else created. Because, oh, by the way, he is the very one through whom everything was created. But as stunning, but as stunning and distinctive as that is, it's still not all the Bible teaches about him. There's more. And John gives us that more. It's not just that Jesus is God. Secondly, what he wants us to know is that Jesus is the only God man. Look at it in verse 14. Jesus is the only God man and the word became, say it, flesh and dwelt among us. I just want you to, if you grew up in church, you've heard that before. This isn't news to you, but I want you to let it sink in. I want you to let it sit in your lap a minute because this is what makes Christianity distinct. Every other religion and ism and sect And way is all about, we'll help you know how you can reach God, how you can please God, how you can try to achieve some favor with God. Only Christianity is a God who came down to us. And the word God became, say it, flesh. And dwelt among. So you need to understand every Christmas when we celebrate this great truth of the incarnation, God in flesh, that, that right within this great truth, tucked down inside of this great truth of God in flesh, is a demotion, is a demotion of staggering, infinite, cosmic proportions. God became flesh. You think about it. By nature, most of us as sinful human beings, we push back and we are offended by the slightest demotion that we experience in this world. And God, God, 
stooped and stepped into our world and laid aside his privileges and rights as God while never ceasing to be God. Don't make a mistake. He never hit the stop and said, I'm no longer God. Now I'm a human. While never ceasing to be God, he chose to lay aside many of his privileges and rights as God. The word became flesh. But here's something else that I want you to get this year that maybe you've never wrestled with. If you're not careful, you can just conclude that John is saying the same thing two ways. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He could have left the second phrase off. No. You need to understand that second phrase takes it to another level. You could have the word becoming flesh and it does not necessitate that the word would dwell among us. Here's what I mean. Here's the distinction that I want to make. I've said it before, but I want you to hear it again. That word dwelt among us in the original language, the Greek, is a word that means pitched a tent or to set up a tent. He pitched a tent among us. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything more earthy than tent camping. Can you? Hmm. I mean, not metaphorically, but literally it puts you on the ground. I am close to what I'm made of, dirt. I'm back to my origins. It puts you on We're not talking about pop-up. We're not talking about fifth wheel camping with a little bedroom up in that other level. We're talking about tent camping. That other stuff doesn't even count. I could do that. It gives you a hose for your poopy to go away. Tent camping, you're right there with the poopy. You're right there with it all. Earthy tent camping. And you have the most raw awareness, do you not, with tent camping. Now, all of you that like it, all three of you, just set aside... The rest of us normal people are tracking with this illustration, right? It's like for hundreds of years, mankind worked to get to the point where he was civilized and had nice stuff. And then there's a few people that want to go back where we were just dragging clubs and scrawling on the wall and saying, oh, let's go do that. (laughs) Tent camping gives you the most raw awareness of limitations. Limitations, inconveniences, dirt, danger, and lack of amenities. I mean, think about it when you're tent camping, how often you think, oh, there's something I want to do, but I can't. There's something I want to have, but I can't. There's somewhere I want to be, home, but I'm not because I'm tent camping. Jesus experienced that became flesh and pitched his tent among us, right with us, earthy. And if you're still not getting it, let me illustrate it this way, that there is a distinction. There is a distinction between became flesh and dwelt among us. If you move into my neighborhood... And you build a huge palace with high, thick, gated walls. And you sprinkle glass on top of those walls. You're in the hood. But you're making a big statement to everyone in that neighborhood, right? Keep your distance. I'm here. But I'm not really, really here to mix it up with you. We're not going to be close. We're not going to be hanging out together. But if you move into my 
neighborhood with canvas and tarps and poles. And you pitch a tent in my backyard? You're probably going to be using my shower. And eating food at my table. And rummaging through my fridge and asking me for band-aids. And spending time with me in my presence. That's what Jesus did. The word became, say it, and, say it, dwelt among us. Say, wow. 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 That's what's at the heart of Christianity. And it's what is at the heart of Christmas. Jesus is God and he's the God man. But now let's answer that Second question, like, so what difference does it make in my life? Is this just some deep theological truth to wrestle with that doesn't relate to real life? Oh, no, no, no. I want to show you from this passage three, three amazing differences it makes in a real life. Three differences, life-changing differences because there is a God-man. Because there is a God-man, there is a difference Number one, here's the first thing you need to understand. Jesus is the only one. Jesus, the God-man, is the only one who can reveal the unseen God to us. He's the only one who can reveal the unseen God to us. Look at it in verse 18. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of of the Father. He has declared him. See, this one that got tent camping earthy close with us is the same one who's in the bosom of the Father. He knows him like no one else. He has intimacy like no one else. And this God-man declares God to us. The NIV says right there, has made him known. It's because the Greek word right there is the word exegeomai, from where we get our English word exegete or exegesis, and it means to bring to the surface or to explain or to make something clear that had not been understood before. Jesus makes clear and explains God for us like no one else. He's the ultimate explanation and revelation of God. God. So listen. Do you want to know what God's like? Look to Jesus. But stay with me. Don't just look to Jesus and observe actions or behavior. Look to Jesus and then listen to his Words, words. Notice it says, he has declared him. Here's what I think is going on. And why Jesus is like no other. Why Jesus is the only one who can really explain God to you and make clear for you who God is. Look to him and listen to his words. Let me illustrate it this way, why I'm saying that and pressing that point. Listen to his words. I've been going to the gym at LA Fitness, Buttermilk Pike, for five years. 
you said, we know. Yeah, I know. And some of you are like, you're kidding me. I would never have guessed that. Okay, five years, three days a week. Five years, three days a week. That's a lot of time there. And so here's the thing that I think is interesting. Guess what? There's a lot of other people there at similar times. And so I can, after five years, three days a week, I can tell you a lot of things about a lot of people. I can tell you what a lot of those people drive. I know the guy that drives the blue Tesla. I can tell, I figured that out. I I know where certain people always park. I know where I always park. I know what locker I always use. God help the person that takes that. I mean, we're we're creatures of habit. I, I see so many people that do some of the same things all the time. What do they drive? Where do they park? What locker do they use? What do they usually wear? And because I'm 53 and I'm not just trying to power lift 500 pounds, I'm mainly there for cardio. So I'm on a treadmill for 30 minutes that I chose one with no TV so I can pray, but I can also observe. I can look around. I got 30 minutes three times a week to look around. And as I observe, I can even draw some conclusions about the way I see people dressed about facial expressions, who I see them talking to, flirting with. I can see all three racquetball courts. I know who's good and who's not. Never even met them. I know who thinks they're good and they're still not. I, I know all kinds of things about all I know some things about people based on what I see them reading on the treadmill. I have drawn all kinds of conclusions. And I also assume that many of them live in my neighborhood or nearby. And that's why they've chosen that gym. So here, here I am with five years, three days a week worth of information about people. But if you showed up this week, please don't, and stood next to my treadmill and began to point out people and say, what about her, Brad? Do you know her? What about him? Do you know him right over there straining? Do you know him up there on that bicycle? On the, on the, do, you, do you know her? Do you know her? In almost every case, I'd have to say no, 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 no. Why? Because unless we've met someone and they have spoken to us, We don't usually put someone in the category of, I know them. Because words, not just observations. Because can you make wrong conclusions based on things you're seeing? Oh, yeah. Because words are how we connect and really know someone, who they are, and especially who they are in relation to us, where their heart is in relation to us. That's why you could be in a marriage for years And still say, I don't really know her or know him because they don't use enough, say it, words. They don't speak to me often enough. So you can be under the same roof. You can be in the same room and still be left guessing who someone really is and especially where their heart is in relationship to you. That's why verse 18 is an amazing verse because Jesus is the only one who declares God to you. That's why he's the word, the word, the word. He declares, he exegetes, he explains God. Now, don't hear me saying, apart from Jesus Christ, you can't know anything about God. Not true. Creation itself, Romans 1 tells us. Oh my goodness. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation itself Tells you, there's a God. There's a God. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. There's God. And your conscience, 
Romans 2 says you've got a conscience that also declares there must be a God. There's got to be more. It cannot just be this finite, frail, temporal stuff. What? But you don't get details. You would not know where his heart is in relation to you. You would not know details about this God except for Jesus Christ exegeting, declaring him to us. Apart from Jesus Christ, you can't know this unseen God, but Jesus reveals the unseen God to us. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus and listen to his say it. Second difference that this makes in your life, real lives. Number two, Jesus is the only one who can give you a unifying purpose for your life. A unifying purpose for your life. You see, John knows that he's about to give a full account of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's going to take him 21 chapters to get it all done. But he doesn't wait In the very first three verses, John wants you to know something that it took him three years to figure out for himself as he spent time with Jesus and walked with Jesus and watched Jesus and listened to Jesus. Took him three years to understand what he's going to tell you in the first three verses because he doesn't want you to live without this. That Jesus is the ultimate unifying purpose for life. You say, now Brad, how are you getting that from the passage? I didn't see the word purpose. Here's where I'm getting it. You need to understand that when John wrote and used in the Greek language in verse one, used the word logos three times for word. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word and the logos was with God and the logos was God. Oh, he was doing something very intentional. He was poking a hornet's nest. He was stirring it up. He was stepping right into a heated, heated debate in his day. See, there are other words for word in the Greek. One of them is rhema that he could have chosen. He didn't. He chose logos. Jesus is the logos. Jesus is. And here's what had been going on. The word logos means far more than just word. It's the word from which we get our English word logic or reason. And the word doesn't just mean reason in general. Like, what's the reason you sat there? What's the reason you ate a hamburger? What? No, 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 no. It was a word in that day that was being used by philosophers that meant raison d'etre, as the French would say, my reason for being reason for existence? Is there anything that holds it all together? Philosophers were wrestling with all these fields of study and themselves and saying, what connects everything together? Is there something that holds it all together? Is there something that makes sense of life? Is there a purpose and meaning for life? Why are we here? And philosophers differed, of course. Their disciples debated, of course. But when John wrote his gospel, they had started to despair in the philosophical community that there was even a logos to be discovered that holds it all together. And John writes, let me tell you 
who it is. It's not something, it's someone. And his name is Jesus. Lagos, Lagos, Lagos. Reason for existence, reason for being, purpose in life. See, see the, the secular world can continue to harp all day long that we don't need God and there is no unifying purpose. And, and yet the human heart just continues to long for what they say we don't need. Long for it. Because we're not animals. We're not plants. You don't have to be a Christian to experience this. All you have to do is be alive. But if you're young, you might be pushing back and saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. My answer to you, just keep having birthdays. Just keep living. Just keep living. And you will bump into this. But what is it all about? Why am I here? What is the reason? What is the purpose? What, it, what holds it all together. And the unifying purpose, John says, is found in Jesus and you in relation to him and you created in the image of God, living for his glory. That's what holds it all together. In fact, all of creation, that's what it is about. This answer stands in stark contrast, even to the philosophers recently in our eras, in the past, like Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher and playwright. Listen to what he said. He said, and I quote, the best that we can hope for is unyielding despair. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist and philosopher, echoed the same sentiment when Jean-Paul Sartre said, quote, unyielding despair. And upon this foundation, we must build our lives. Who wants to build their life on the foundation of unyielding despair? You know what I appreciate about Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre and Nietzsche who went insane? These were at least honest atheists, my friends. But it's been around long enough and the human heart so much wants there not to be a God. What we have today are happy atheists that have tried to put a happy spin on this and don't talk that way anymore. But here's what they've had to do. Atheists have had to reach into the Christian camp and grab hold of purpose and hope and import it. That's our stuff. They're not being logical. The logical conclusion was absolutely how these men were talking and what they were doing. Many of them killed themselves. Many of them end in insanity because unyielding despair. It's hard to build your life on unyielding despair. Jesus. Jesus, you were never designed to live for just the temporal stuff of this world. It is not enough. And so John doesn't give us another account of the facts of Christmas. John wanted to answer the cry of philosophers and settle the confusion in that community and the the cry of every human heart. But why am I here? What is life about? Is there anything that holds it all together? Yes. Jesus is the Logos. The God-man brings us the ability to understand the unseen God. And he gives us a unifying purpose for life. It's not just Christians that have philosophy departments. Unbelievers have them. All you have to do is be alive 
to have this desire. Yeah, but, yeah, but what, 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 what? Why are we here? What is this all about? Thirdly, let me tell you one more difference. The God, man, this doctrine of incarnation makes in real lives. Number three, Jesus is the only one who has the power to conquer darkness and evil. Jesus. Again, if you're here today and you're just semi-conscious, that's all we need. If you're semi-conscious, you don't even have to be a Christian. Then in some of your quiet moments, the question of evil and suffering and darkness in our world is something that troubles you. It troubles you. Doesn't trouble golden retrievers. It doesn't trouble the rest of the kingdom world, right? I mean, so there's evil, there's darkness. Fine, I'll kill something. When we see people act that, we know something's gone really wrong. In general, even you don't have to be an unbelie- a believer. Unbelievers are troubled by darkness and evil, and they want to make a difference. That's why unbelievers get involved with, let's make a difference with sex trafficking, try to end that. Let's make a difference with slavery and try to end that. Let's make a difference with children with bloated bellies and ribs showing. Let's distribute food. Let's get food there. Let's get clean water. We want there to be some justice. Do something about the evil and suffering and darkness in the world. To be troubled about evil and darkness is to be human. And John says, let me tell you, there is something that has been done and will yet be more fully done. Let me show you what I'm talking about. It's in verse 4 and 5. Look at verses 4 and 5. In him, talking about the God-man Jesus, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, that's not a, that's not a terrible translation. Is it? it's, it's wrong, but it's not the best. If you have the ESV, then it says, and the darkness did not overcome it. New American Standard says the darkness could not overpower it. Because it's the Greek word katalaban that can mean... To lay hold of something, to grasp it, as in apprehend it and understand it. But it also has a sense of to take a position and win the day. To take a position over and win the day. That's a better translation of what I think is happening here in verse 5. That Jesus, His light, His power, His truth is what will prevail over darkness and evil. And it cannot overcome Him. You say, well, where is this happening, Brad? What is going on today? The day, oh, it's already started, my friend. It's already started. You say, how do we know he has that kind of power and that anything's going to be done? His power over darkness and evil, he began the process of breaking that at the cross and resurrection. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Don't lose your place in John 1, but go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 shows us that his power began working that victory at the cross and resurrection. Colossians 2 verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He 
He made a public spectacle of them. Look at that word. Triumphing over them in it. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he broke the power of evil and Satan and death and darkness. And he's going to finish what he started. It's started and it can give you hope. You don't have to fix this. You don't have to solve this. Make a difference. Be a light. Be compassionate. Be kind. Share the good news. But you don't have to fix this. There is one who has power and justice will be done. Darkness will be vanquished. Evil will be dispelled. King Jesus is that one. See, as we noted last week, the celebration of Advent throughout the history of the church, what we're doing this month, has never been about focusing solely on his birth in the manger, looking back. Oh, yes, that's wonderful. But it's just the start of what God promised in Genesis 3 he was going to do. Advent is about stopping and reflecting and focusing in two very different directions. Yes, back. But too often, even in America, all we do is look back and we've We've just, it's filled with nostalgia and eggnog and sweetness and candlelights and all that. Don't hear me saying it's wrong, but it's not enough. Look forward. This one in the manger is coming back. And here's what I think is cool. The author of the gospel of John did write some other books. This same author, John, also has another book where he calls this God man who came to Bethlehem, The Word, the Word of God. But oh my goodness, he's coming back in a very different way. Look at Revelation 19. Revelation 19, beginning of verse 11. The God man, the Word is coming back. But oh, look at how he's coming. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. So much for the swaddling clothes, folks. New outfit, new arrival, new day, new purpose. And and the armies, oh, I'm sorry. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called, say it, the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of of almighty God. And on his robe and on his thigh, a name written, say it with me, King of kings and Lord of lords. Your Christmas is incomplete if you don't see the word who's coming back. 
is coming back. He's going to finish what he started. He's going to make all things right. He's going to completely, fully conquer evil and Satan. And judge every human being who did not respond to his free, humble, gracious, loving offer now. If that passage scares you, that I just read, if it troubles you and unsettles you, yea, verily, even if it causes you to not sleep well tonight, good, good. If it causes you in a way that the manger would not to think, am I ready? Am I ready for the return of the word of God who's coming back very differently than he arrived into our world the first time? Am I ready? Have I received him? Have I bowed the knee? Have I accepted him as Lord and King? Oh, listen, you will bow the knee in that day. Revelation 19, what it talks about there. Every knee then is going to bow and say, Jesus is Lord, but it will be too late. You'll know the truth and you will say the truth. But only those who today received him will here enter in to your eternal rest. Everyone else will hear, depart from me. I never knew you and be cast into outer darkness. Oh, listen to me, my friend. Prepare him room today. Receive him today. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is and did what the scriptures testify he did. He's the only one who can explain God to you. Stop looking other places. Every other path and religion and sect and ism is a lie. It's a dead end. The nonsense that all roads are just on this mountain of God and just lead to the same God. It's a lie and it's leading some of you to hell. You don't get to just choose your religion and there's all these options. There's nobody else like Jesus. He's the only God man who can reveal God to you and oh. He's the only one who ever stood in the path of God's wrath. Not Buddha, not Hare Krishna, not anybody else, not Joseph Smith. Jesus stood in the path of God's wrath and took it for you so that you would not have to experience it. You only have two options. You either look to Jesus to take God's wrath for you. If you reject Jesus, you're saying, I'll take God's wrath myself. Oh, don't do that. Oh, don't do that. Today, Jesus is saying, come to me. All who are weary, heavy burdened, I'll give you rest. It's not saying I'll make sure you have no trials and you don't suffer. That rest is talking about you can finally rest in knowing, oh, I don't have to guess what God is like and what he thinks of me. I know it from Jesus and what he says. You can finally rest that I don't have to try to make everything right. I don't have to vote the right people into office to make things right. There's a king who has already started the process and he's going to finish what he started. My hope is in Jesus. In the meantime, I can live for him and make a difference where I am and be salt and light. I don't have to fix this. There is one who will. Rest. Rest. 
You say, well, Brad, how does that purpose, that unifying purpose, and that hope that there's someone with power over darkness become mine? Oh, fix your eyes on the good news of verse 12. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. You've got to believe, not just that he existed. The Jehovah's Witnesses have got that. The demons have got that. Read James 1. The demons believe and they're doing better than you, it says, and they tremble. We got human beings today that believe and they don't tremble. It's more than that. You got to believe that he is the only God man who did for you what you could never do for yourself to keep the law perfectly and to give his perfect sinless life in payment for yours. Believe that he is who he says he is and receive him because news alert. You have to become a child of God. You see what it's saying there in verse 12? As many as received him, he gave the right to become. You are not born a child of God. The world gets it wrong when they hold hands and say, we're all children of God. We're all created in the image of God and we are image bearers, but we are all rebels and enemies outside the family of God until you bow the knee and put your trust in Jesus and God adopts you into his family and you become a son or daughter of God. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone plus Have you received him? Oh, there's even more good news. When you receive Jesus into your life, you do not just become a child of God. You do. You become a recipient of what Jesus is full of. Think about it. If he comes into your life, then he's going to bring with him what he's full of. Look at what he's full of in verse 16. And of his fullness... It's not like, oh, he's just got a little bit of this tucked off to the side. He's mainly full of something else, but there's a little bit of this. No. And of his fullness, we who believe and have received him have all received. What's the word? Upon grace. Grace piled on top of grace. Grace in place of more grace. You don't have to live on yesterday's grace. There's a never ending, never expires, never runs out. You'll never be told, no, that's it for your allotment. Grace upon grace. When you receive, not judgment upon judgment, not wrath upon wrath, not condemnation piled on condemnation, not rejection upon rejection. When you receive Jesus into your life, you get grace piled on top of grace. Do you have him in your life? I'm not asking you, do you know and believe he existed? Do you have Jesus in your life? Do you have that unifying purpose? What life's all about? And I got a reason to live. See, here's the good news. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are today, what you've done and what you've been through. John 1 is telling you your life in Christ has purpose. 
It's not random. It's not meaningless. You're not an accident. Purpose. And you can have hope. And you can have the very presence of God and an awareness of him in your life. So you don't live in the dark. You don't live ignorant. You don't live wondering. Today he offers grace. But folks, that final day, and we don't know when that is. It's not marked on our calendars, but it's on his That final day in Revelation when he comes back, it's not going to be an invitation to come to him and receive grace upon grace. He's coming to judge the nations and all who have rejected him and said, no, I want to be God. I want to call the shots in my own life. I know what's best. I can do this without a God. Let me close with a final illustration. You ever seen a TV commercial for a psychiatric hospital or mental health services? Probably have. I have as I'm watching football or whatever. But here's what I want to ask you. If you paid attention and you didn't mute it, have you ever pushed back and questioned their definition of sanity and insanity and who needs psychiatric help? Here's what I mean. Commercial shows a guy coming, coming home to a beautiful home. A lot nicer than mine. Beautiful children are greeting him. And he has a lovely wife. But then as the camera tracks with him, it shows him distinctly looking so sad and being very depressed. Even in the face of all they just showed you. And then the voiceover Then the voiceover comes into the commercial and says this. Do you come home to all the things you ever wanted but feel like you have nothing? And then it asked another question. Do you come home to all the things you ever wanted? And it's still not enough. Then the name of the services begins to scroll across the screen. In other words, if you've got a beautiful home and beautiful children and a lovely wife and you're depressed or sad and think that's not enough, you need psychiatric help. You're insane. That's what the world thinks, folks. And and here's the deal. Often, here's what keeps men and women even going. The lack of some of that. But you keep thinking, when I get that, when I get that home, that home I have in my mind, when I've got those children, I've got that wife, or I've got grandchildren, or we get to Europe, or whatever it is, it's some of what you think will do it that you don't have that keeps you motivated and going. Some of the most miserable, empty, heartless, depressed people are those who have it because now they know but that didn't fill me it's not enough I'm still the Bible would tell you listen to me the Bible would say no that man in the commercial that woman responding that way to these things just might be one of the few 
people in our world seeing things as they really are and realizing this is not enough. Marriage, children, good thing? Oh yeah, good gift? Was it ever meant to completely cha-ching? Settle in and yes, I have no more desires. I am so satisfied. I don't think so. Cars, houses, travel, success, image, promotions, you name it, it can't fill because he says he's placed eternity in their hearts. Only a relationship with an infinite being, the God man, can fill the space in your soul. This stuff can't do it because it was never designed to do it. That's why C.S. Lewis said, if I find within myself a desire that nothing in this world fully satisfies, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Listen to me. You need Jesus to keep from going insane in this world. And unlike the TV preachers, coming to Jesus doesn't then get you the house and the beautiful wife and the expensive dog and doghouse. No. Coming to Jesus enables you for the first time to have joy and contentment and purpose and meaning with the house you do have and the spouse you do have. Or the lack of spouse, and I'm single, but I wish I was married. But you know, I've got a bridegroom coming. I've got a wedding. I may just be in lots of weddings now, and I always wish it was mine, but mine's coming. It's going to be better than any of this stuff. Ice sculptors and carriages apart. I've got one coming. I've got a bridegroom. I am loved. I am in a, in a meaningful sense of my life matters because I know Jesus. Jesus is the all-satisfying logos. Logos. Don't waste your life chasing after all the things of this world that can never fully satisfy. Receive him and receive grace piled on top of grace. Oh God, thank you for the free gift of eternal life. Thank you for Jesus, the God-man.